you don't have to build relationships forever. It's okay for things to begin and to end before, you know, you have a time to understand why it was there in the first place. Hey, you, you're listening to Not Yet, the podcast about our relationships and how they're the keys to our self-discovery. I'm your host, Paige Polk. I'm a community builder and Emmy award-winning digital media artist, channeling the powers of introspection. You're in the right place if you're mindful about the world you create and believe it's possible for us all to belong. I'm so grateful you're here. Now let's start the show. Welcome back to the Not Yet Podcast. This community healing project is for creators on a spiritual journey, and I'm so grateful that you're here. And I have a super special guest whose name is Justin. Hey, Justin. Hey there. <laughs> How are you doing? Today's a good day. You know, um, all things considered, always try to make it one. Absolutely. Always. Always another day, always another opportunity. Justin McElderry is a multidisciplinary artist and designer. In 2019, Justin formed Work Study, a production and design practice specializing in movement, ephemera, object, and strategy. He recently enrolled at Harvard Graduate School of Design to obtain a master's in architecture, and his artwork explores themes of solitude, angst, and self discovery. Yeah, that's me, I think. <laughs> you know, you know, it's interesting, like, it's weird when somebody reads your bio back to you. It's like, damn, like that. That is me, I guess. <laughs> if I had to, if I had to say so. Um, yeah, I think I'm really excited about this combo. Uh, you know, our our relationships goes back, I guess, going on a year and a half now, probably. And Feels right. Yeah. I think so much has happened in this time that um, sort of documenting things as they go and as they come becomes more and more important. Uh, I think these these are both healing conversations and helpful conversations for others. So, you know, hopefully we can get a little bit of both. A little bit of both. Yes. Uh, you you smiled when I read your bio. And uh, I'm curious, you know, because that's definitely the black and white version of Justin. Uh, who are you beyond the bio? Ooh, uh, hmm. I think curiosity is probably the most, best word to describe um, my, my personality, my practice, my humanity, if you will. And um, for the longest, I think many of things have come and gone in terms of interests. And for a while, for a while there, I was feeling that I was the jack of all trades, master of none sort of situation. Um, much like many people probably listen to this or many people who call themselves uh, creators or creatives, whatever the, the noun is now. <laughs> um, you know, and after a while, I started to realize that it's okay to have bursts of energy about things and then be bored of them later. You know, sometimes they're like, uh, sometimes we arrive at cups that are already half full and our job is not to overflow them, but to simply fill them up and then move on to the next cup. And I think that that's been a, uh, a measure of my growth over the years. And, you know, as it reflects in the bio to date, I think that that's like, you know, just sort of a, a testament to that journey. 
I love that metaphor. There are different stages in the cup filling process. And yes, it's an option to do it all. You can bring the cup, fill it up all the way to the brim, and then move on to the next cup. And also, you can be responsible just for bringing the cup. (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, I think that's probably taken the longest is to realize what it feels like and what it means to bring the cup. Uh, you know, as somebody who considers himself rather self-sufficient, it's tough to ask for help sometimes. And, um, you know, also at the same time, it, when when I do ask for help, it's incumbent upon me and I guess everyone to sort of specifically know what you need help with. Um, and perhaps that added degree of pressure that one comes to the table with, like, keeps you from coming at all. So, yeah, I think, again, in addition to the journey that we've been talking about this far, is that, um, you know, making peace with the fact that you don't know exactly what you need help with, while also uh, sort of having the courage to show up with a cup and say, hey, can you fill me, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I have been, you know, like my, my love is self-awareness. That's been the lens through which I have built a lot of my work, whether it's been through media or community organizing. It's uh, when we're healing our communities, it absolutely starts with healing ourselves. And in order to heal yourself, it is definitely helpful to know what your pain points are. Um, but there's also something beautiful and and sort of retroactively going about it, <laughs> you know, and just being like, oh, wait, so this hurts. Mm. I can be mindful that this hurts. And I don't have to have the answer of why it hurts yet. Mm. Knowing that it hurts is enough for right now. And sometimes you meet people who say that used to hurt for me too. And I found this out because they might have a different skill set than you, might have a different set of experiences than you, um, maybe just different perspective than you. And there is definitely benefit of showing up saying, here's my cup. (laughs) Please help. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, I was just thinking about this yesterday and uh, I was reading, you know, a random book I have in the house and uh, I used to have this habit when I was little of like buying books and not finishing them and then feeling bad about buying them and then just going to a tailspin of not reading at all and you know when I say little I'm like 10, 11, 12 years old that sort of age range and you know over the years I became like obsessed with completion and the idea that you needed to in order for something to be worthwhile you need to complete it And, you know, as time went on, as time went on, as time went on, I've become more at peace with the understanding that, you know, maybe I'm like, again, back to the same thing. It's like maybe all I needed was that one paragraph. And, you know, sometimes you don't need the whole tool belt to carry the entire journey. You just need the hammer to get from point A to point B. And sometimes the hammer is not needed for the rest of the alphabet. Um, So, you know, as it relates to showing up with a cup and needing filling, You know, I think that as creators, as people who are perhaps in healing or perhaps, you know, seeking to heal others, which is sort of the same thing, um, you know, 
I find that it's important for us to to understand that sometimes we can be full off of you know what we would previously deem to be you know a uh, an appetizer, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a mark of true leadership. Also, recognizing where your skills are, where your interests are, and also knowing that where your skills and interests are may not be sufficient for the problem. Mm. And that's how you build a team. (laughs) You find others who have the skills and interests to complement yours Mm. with the full problem in mind. Yeah. You know, um, as, as I think about like this topic of teams and uh, team building and that sort of thing, I was having a conversation um, maybe about a week or two ago about, you know, what, what is something that I long for? And, you know, uh, my, at the time I was really quite frustrated with, you know, my practice and my process and the idea of collaboration and how collaborations were working at the time for me. And it wasn't as productive as I would have hoped it would be. And a lot of the reasons why was because, um, you know, sort of forced ideas of, collaboration being inherently valuable. Now, like where I'm going with this is that my answer to the question um, in that conversation was that I was hoping for uh, a more, co- more coherent collaboration. I was hoping for, you know, for my, for my particular beliefs for God to put someone in my life and to sort of uh, give me clarity over who was meant to collaborate with and whom, who are the people that it's okay to sort of understand that this isn't a lifelong collaboration or a lifelong partnership or a lifelong relationship. Perhaps it's just for this period. Um, and perhaps that's something that people listening could benefit from hearing is that, Hey, like a lot of the loneliness and a lot of the perhaps uh, frustration that artists experience and designers experience and musicians and anyone who was tapped into, uh, you know, to making things that emote, you know, I think uh, it's incumbent on those people to realize that, hey, like, you don't have to build relationships forever. You don't have to have relationships that are, you know, lifelong. Perhaps some relationships are transactional and that's OK. And I'm, that's something that I'm learning is uh, those things. It's OK for things to begin and to end before, you know, you have a time to understand why it was there in the first place. Well, personally, I love it way up here in the clouds. (laughs) I love the abstract. Um, I think there's a a magic in being able to think up here. Um, And a practice I've been building is bringing it down. And in 2020, you sparked an abolition project, which I think is a wonderful example of a lot of the things that we're talking about, about bringing your cup, (laughs) about building teams, about realizing the way that you show up might be different than the way you expected to show up. And can you tell me a little bit about this project that you gathered of uh, thinkers in art, design, theory, and community to dream up a free future? 
Yeah, yeah. I think, um, <laughs> you know, as you know, that's the reason why we met in the first place. Uh, for context, um, the name of the project was called The Reparations Project. And uh, I think for context, every quarter or at least, you know, depending on what I have going on, um, I try to initiate a project that is um, sort of an internal case study. And my goal in these case studies is to simply understand something at um, to its core and to propose something that uh, can be implemented. And, you know, I'm choosing my words carefully because these case studies don't always manifest as something that's like, you know, an art project or, you know, graphics or a building or anything like that. Sometimes they are words. Sometimes they are, you know, essays. Sometimes they are, you know, perspectives, articles, those sorts of things. And at this particular time, um, obviously last summer and early, you know, late spring, that sort of thing was a very difficult time with regard to race relations in, in the United States and abroad. And finally, like the chickens were beginning to roost. Um, and, you know, I think everyone had a certain response to that. Some responses were um, highly emotional and then some responses were highly logical. And I think um, where people fall on that spectrum is wherever they fall and that's okay. And I think everyone was looking for a way to sort of have their voice be heard. Um, so as this relates to the reparations projects, I was thinking critically about how I felt about it and um, how my experiences plugged into what was going on socially. And I found that for me, the um, expression in the artistic form was not what an answer looked like for me. Uh, I think think certain things are meant to heal and then certain things are meant to help. And I think both need to happen. Um, but for me, artistic expression was not the helping part. It was the healing part. So with regard to reparations, I was looking for a way to bring together and create a think tank that would allow um, true discussions and true plans to be made with regard to what a reparation um, action plan could look like. And a lot of the ideas that were present in that action plan and were set to be discussed were uh, hmm. they were quite detailed and they were quite uh, to, to some, they might be quite radical. And I think that like, I was excited about that at the time and still am excited, but you know, I'm sure there's more to talk about, but that's sort of the background on why it was created or what it was. Yeah. So it sounds like something I'm really picking up from you in this conversation is creating to heal and creating to help. Sometimes there's a, a leaning on one side or the other, and sometimes a project can do both. And with this particular project, you saw an opportunity to do more helping. Whereas in some of your other work, um, you have been focusing on healing. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. I've never actually thought about that binary, but you know, I think, um, <laughs> you know, when, when you start, what's the, uh, Picasso line is like, uh, 
inspiration finds you, but only while working. So I think in this conversation, things become clear as you, you know, truly begin to work these ideas out. So, yeah, I think that binary does make complete sense and it's pretty accurate. How did this project relate to the work you were building at the time? Mm. Yeah, I think um, at the time, a lot of the work was about creative accessibility, as is most of my work. Um, I think the story, uh, my narrative and my life journey as, you know, some just who I am <laughs> is uh, related to the idea of uh, use clean water as an example. Of, you know, I, will, I always feel that like, for the longest time, I was always waiting on somebody to tell me to do it the right way or like how to, how it should be done. And I was like trying to figure out how things were being made. So at the time, um, we just finished a project called the Public Library. We just launched it and um, Public Library is still active and it's a uh, creative accessibility tool that gives you access to um, what your favorite artists and designers are reading, watching and listening to. And we got a good bit of press on that and it was very very successful um, at the time when people were not really doing um, or didn't yet know how to do uh, digital events we were launching those things very quickly and to great reception and you know that was just prior to the reparations project coming to life and I think that as it relates how, how the two relate is that you know I was very much so in a mindset of wanting to do things that were actually helpful and actually had bullet points and actually had um, measures of success. And I think when doing that, the projects begin to be contagious in that way. Can you say more about contagious? Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of the projects that come across my desk and that I'm working on at any given time are very like set in a particular mood. You know, I think that like uh, sometimes the mood is very melancholic and sometimes the mood is very joyful and sometimes it's somewhere in between. Um, and I think our job as artists and designers is to, is to capture that mood while it's available to us. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, painters or, anyone that deals with manipulation of light, which would be anyone in the visual arts, um, your job is, is to represent what is unseen to the seen eye. And I think as artists in general, our job is to sort of capture what is what everyone feels and sort of um, bottle that moment up in a, a way that's understandable. So, you know, to your question of what does contagious mean, it mean, mean it's it means that a lot of um, a lot of the projects follow a, a similar pattern until I sort of rid myself of that like emotion, or until another wave comes. I like the word contagious a lot, especially when it comes to projects where people opt in into a community because in order to have a strong community, you have to have a strong core. You have to have a strong foundation and it has to be rooted in something that resonates with the people that it calls in. 
And I think that the reparations project, speaking as someone who actually I reached out to you because I followed your newsletter for a little bit and you had, you brought up that you were building a project, a think tank to articulate what reparations could look like an action plan. And as someone who spends a decent amount of time thinking about things in the abstract, there was a certain resonance for me in doing helpful work, doing helpful work that was rooted in my healing work making that transition and uh, and I could tell that the other folks that we were meeting with had a similar understanding of what we were there to do. Yeah. And could you share a little, I mean, I know I was there, but <laughs> could you share a little bit about sort of the arc of experience with the reparations project? Yeah. Um, hmm. From my point of view or from others? From yours, please. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think the the very first thing that I try to do when I'm um, feeling, feeling something very intensely is I try to understand it through the written word. Um, and that's, that's the best way that I can move from healing to helping. So the first thing that I did as events were unfolding in, um, in society, if you will, was start to write down um, how these things made me feel and what exactly was at the root of this. And putting on that hat of needing to use words to describe feelings. You know, people talk about that a lot in like parenting one-on-one is, you know, telling their kids to use their words. Um, because a lot of times kids just start throwing tantrums and sometimes adults throw tantrums. Oh yeah, for sure. You <laughs> see you see the connecting notes. So um, you know, I think that like a lot of the feelings I was having at the time, in order to prevent from throwing a tantrum, I had to write down what was the problem. Um and over time I realized that there are sort of like these three traumas that kept coming back and back and back every time, where it's emotional, it's financial, and it's financial and there's physical. So, you know, I think as time goes on, God willing, physical trauma will begin to be um less and less and less. But that doesn't help the emotional trauma and the financial trauma specifically for uh as I refer to them as black Americans. And um, I think that without getting into too much detail about what I truly think on these on these topics, um, the arc went very quickly from I feel all these emotions to let's bottle these emotions into three three buckets and then let's take these emotions and understand, you know, what are the domains of opportunity and where can we actually implement change um, in a way that, you know, once the dust settles, people can like, put a pen to paper and understand what needs to happen. And um, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's sort of the peak of the arc. And then the arc after that was sort of understanding what that meant for, um, hmm, 
what that really meant for you know, a life trajectory and what that really meant for time spent and what that meant for uh, my own emotional health throughout the process. So I guess that would be the art, motion, action, or plans, and then emotion again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you eventually did bring this project to a halt. And I say a halt because it doesn't feel like it ended. It didn't feel like a failure. It felt like an intentional pause for reevaluation, whether it was for medium or method or context or timing. And I'm curious about what the internal process for you was in deciding to make that halt with the reparations project. Yeah. Um, as a general statement, I think leaders should be very conscious of their capacity to lead at any given time. And um, that doesn't make them less than, if anything, I think that makes them more than capable. And it's kind of odd that that paradox exists. It's like you're understanding that you might not be capable or you might not have capacity at the time um, actually makes you more capable to do it. So that's sort of the paradox that I was sitting with. And as this thing began to get legs and things were rolling and you know, people were showing interest. And I think that having the foresight and understanding this is not checkers, this is truly chess when you start dealing with things like this. Like again, when you move from a when you move from help or healing to helping, you're moving from playing a nice friendly game of checkers to playing chess. And understanding what you know what this old saying is like chess masters understand twelve moves ahead and amateurs understand the next move. Um I don't really consider myself a master of anything, but I think God has blessed me with enough opportunity and, you know, insight over the years, I think, hopefully to understand at least five, six moves ahead and to see what's coming and being able to evaluate whether that's something I was interested in being part of or not. Um, so I think it's a, to answer your question, it's a, it's a simultaneous uh, product of um, medium. I think it's a product of capacity. I think this thing shutting down or putting on pause is a, is a product of development too and understanding. Um, you know, when you, when you do something as radical as drawing a line in the sand to define what is a black American and who deserves reparations and starting to put numbers and uh, demographics and uh, restrictions on that, that can get very contentious very quickly. And it's cool as like a nice bullet point and something as like a caption of, you know, your own journal. But when you start publishing that and when you start putting it out there as something that, you know, needs to happen in a certain way and in that way, you know, um, it's the old saying, philosophical saying, it's like, it's, as soon as you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. And if you're not okay with the shipwrecking, then you better not invent the ship. Um, so I think that's sort of like the rationale behind why uh, it was put on pause at the time. I think that metaphor can apply to anything that we create. If we are not 
internally ready to acknowledge that there will be pushback, to acknowledge that the work will be critiqued, that the work will be judged, and being personally ready is different for every person. Sometimes it's just an emotional state and sometimes it's having, you know, 12 steps ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's an opportunity. Yeah. You know, the core question is sort of, uh, you know, less about, or I don't want to say what the core question is that you're coming up with, but what I think about is, um, you know, less about what the project is. I don't really think about the reparations project and the name and, you know, what should the branding be and how should it be released or any of that stuff. I think about, you know, what does activism look like for each person um, on an individual basis? What does your activism look like? Everybody's an activist for something, um, you know, whether that be like being vegan, whether that be eating meat, whether that be, like, <laughs> you know, working out, not working out, like every action is, you know, a deposit in your activism bank. And I think that like, when you start to look at that in that way, you begin to understand what you're about. So, you know, understanding that um, the reparations project was another deposit in an act in a bank of activism that I've been making my whole life. I had to understand like what those deposits, what I want those deposits to be. And if I was okay with, you know, it being in that certain form. So, um, as it relates to my work as at large and as it relates to you know my interests in the project um, I think that you know I, I always come back to a friend of uh, a mentor of mine um, sort of an OG who like gave me some advice a while ago I always come back to whenever I'm like unsure what to do next and he was like hey man the, the world is anxiously awaiting your arrival just don't get there too soon And I'll I'll hold off on mentioning his name just out of his own personal privacy. But, you know, he's he's been there and he's he's done some things and I believe him. And I think a lot of what uh, drives us in terms of passion um, might be limiting in terms of our purpose because we're we're too emotionally taken about taken over by our passion that we miss the purpose. So, you know. I think that when you ever start to feel that way, like you're riding a wave that you thought you created, but it's truly something that's taking you. Like you thought you were in control of this wave, but it's actually taking you somewhere you don't want to go. And I think having the foresight to sort of see that is something I'm grateful for. And um, yeah, I think, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. I'm about to ask a question and it could be interpreted in two ways in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm curious about how you're going to interpret it. So how do you believe your experience with this project will manifest with your future work? Yeah. Um I really think that leaning on the the leaning on the tension between helping and healing is where it's where the magic happens. And anytime I started getting way too much into the helping thinking I'm some like politician, um, which inevitably you end up being because you need votes and you need money. If you don't have money yourself to make these things happen and, you know, being politically correct usually leaves 
some things on the table or on the cutting room floor that I'm not happy with. Um, so what that means is that I see these changes manifesting and I see the, the impact of these things manifesting by example, um, manifesting through the written word, manifesting through artwork and mani- manifesting through um, demonstration, not in the sense of like, let's go march down, you know, I don't know, 16th Street in Birmingham. That's where I'm from, by the way. It's like these these uh, values of activism are very like embedded in my cultural history, my family history, my uh, geographic history. Like these things are deeply rooted in in my blood. And I think that, you know, having the foresight to understand that marching is not for me, not in this sense, you know, um, not in the traditional sense, rather. And being able to understand that there are other mediums, there are other means to accomplish very similar things that don't have to happen, uh, you know, in in a traditional activist way. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not dancing around the question. I'm giving you the honest answer that says, uh, wherever the tension between helping and healing exists, that's where I'll be. It's so funny because uh, your response to the question was right in the middle of the two ways I interpreted it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It, uh, the ways I interpreted it were your personal journey as a creator and a leader being one and the other being the work that you build. Hmm. Yeah. You know, in a way, they're the same thing. I think that like, I was listening to this interview a while ago with two of my, two of my creative heroes. Um, it was Birdie White and Rick Rubin talking and uh, Rick asked Birdie, he was like, hey, like, what is, what is the biggest lesson you've learned in your 30, 40 something odd career with Earth, Wind and Fire? And uh, he was like, you know, can't really point it down or pin it down to one lesson, but I have seen that creators of the past always wanted to be famous. They always wanted to be known. We always wanted to be recognizable. And now creatives of the future seem to be seeking to be eternal or immortal. And, you know, when I recognized that distinction, I understood more about what drives a lot of the practices of the modern time, you know, the same reasons that the reparations project was put on hold are the same reasons why, you know, somebody is so hesitant to put, you know, their sketches on their Instagram or their, their mood board and take a picture of it and post it somewhere because these are markers of uh, your immortality. You know, this is a deeper topic that we could get into, but um, the decisions that people are making now have more weight and they require more courage, maybe not more courage, but they require courage and they require bravery to step out there in one way or the other. And I think um, being calculated without being careful seems to be the, the answer to what to do. You're definitely playing a different game when you, you transition from Visibility to legacy. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. Some some other stuff I've been reading lately is just uh, different forms of Stoic philosophy, and specifically, I've been reading uh, biblical teachings in Ecclesiastes and also the Tao Te Ching. And what I've learned in reading those three is that, um, or Camus is also, I know it's not religious, but if you read Albert Camus, you get the same vibes. And it's like, even though I'm not necessarily in like a dark place or anything like that at this point, you know, reflecting on meaninglessness is really important, I think, for a lot of people. Um, it's scary. It's extremely terrifying. Like the the proposal or the, the proposition that something might have zero meaning to it is very, very scary. Yet at the same time, um, there were reports a while ago, this is several years ago, I don't know where I read this, but that Rothko paintings were being used in hospice centers to heal. And I think when you start to reflect on a Rothko painting and you start to see like, well, it's just a square or it's just this or it's just that or it's just that. How could that possibly help anything? And it's like sometimes the understanding that it's just X, Y, Z is actually more healing than we might imagine. So um, as I get older and as I start to have, I guess, more scars, more bruises, more memories, um, I start to see that some some things just don't mean anything and it's okay. (laughs) You know, some things are just as they are. It's, It's a true uh, manifestation of the blues. You know, the blues is all about things as they are, uh, rumination on things as they are. And as a foundation of, you know, black culture, I think most people should understand what the blues is about and then what jazz is about and understand the offshoots of each. And I think that like, sometimes I'm in a very jazz mood where it's very schizophrenic. It's very, <laughs> you know, it's very, uh, generative. Right, exactly. And sometimes in a very blues mood, and it's like things just are as they are. If you taught anybody in the South, they just at you as old dude in the South, like, hey, like, how you feel about that? And you just say, like, it is what it is. And that's where that comes from. And sometimes it just is what it is, and that's okay. Can you share one practice that's helping you discover who you are? Yeah. Um, I can share a couple. Uh, one thing that I've been doing recently is reading. Um, not that I didn't read before, but reading in a different way. <laughs> uh, like I mentioned earlier, I used to read for completion. And that actually went all the way up until like last year or maybe a year and a half ago where I was just like, ah, finish this book, finish this book, finish this book, finish this book. And I would do it and I would finish it and it'd be like, all right, cool. Like I finished it. And I would retain a lot of it too, but at the same time, I wasn't really recognizing the enjoyment I was having throughout the process. So one thing I've done is started to take a physical book and walk down to the nearest coffee shop, <laughs> grab a tea and, you know, whatever pastry of choice and just sit there and read in the coffee shop, no laptop, no phone no nothing, just sit and read. And this isn't like, for the purpose of like some meeting I'm preparing for or some work I'm trying to do. It's just like, let me just read the written word. Let me have a conversation with somebody else who took the time to understand their thoughts and write it down. Um, so that's practice number one. It's actually very therapeutic, very healing. And it's helped me understand that um, 
I love I love when I find poetry in the world. I think that's the most exciting thing about my existence. Uh, not for others, but for me. I get really excited when things are poetic. Um, and sometimes it doesn't have to be actual rhyme, rhyme scheme driven poem or poetry to be poetic. Uh, the second practice I really enjoyed is healing. It's helping me understand me is um, sort of, uh, I don't know how to describe this, but it's essentially just getting back to sketching and understanding that, understanding why forms uh, come together and come out. Um, I think it's called like subconscious sketching or something like that. But the point is um, I open up by not Moleskin, but my book that I think Moleskin is overpriced on by me. <laughs> I, I buy my, you know, I get my knockoff Moleskin for like $8 or whatever. <laughs> and, um, I open that up and I just start sketching and seeing what forms come out and try to interpret why that form was of interest. And I think you learn more about like your state of mind when you're able to see it and you're able to read it or you're able to touch it or you're able to hear it. And, you know, through meditative practices, the goal is to do all those at once. But sometimes, sometimes you need to like speed up the clock on that. Sometimes like when it's red alert time and you need to see what's going on, maybe you need to scribble and have it make no sense that day. And then come back the next day and be like, dang, that's what my mind was looking like. <laughs> it's kind of, it's very, uh, it's very, under, very helpful for me at least. And that really does bring it back to the top of our conversation about documenting what is and what changes. Yeah. You know, um, hmm. I realized that uh, the documentation process is for a future you. Um, I always like so skeptical about formal journaling and I have like a stack of journals in a safe place and every now and then I'll like open them up. And I used to like formally journal when things were like really not good. I'd be on like an everyday thing where, you know, in general, my life was good and everything was okay, but you know, traumatic experiences or pain or you know anything people normally journal about normal stuff. And I'll be like, man, this ain't helping. What am I doing? Wasting my time. <laughs> like, I just throw this book away, man. This ain't helping nothing. And I come back like a year later or two years later, three years later. I'll be like, man, I don't even know what that was about. I was tripping. And then you come back like five days, or not five days, five years later, which is something I've done recently. And I started reading journals from like 20, this is even longer. This journals from like 2013. That's eight years ago. And understanding like where my head was at and understanding that like I was trying to work something out and much like, uh, you know, much like one of my creative heroes, Dave Chappelle was saying his latest standup is like, I just hope that you see I'm a human having an experience. And I think that like the more we can begin to see ourselves in that light, will give us the ability to have more patience with others and seeing others in that light. Um, being the being the subject and the object, being the one experiencing it and the one observing it at the same time is like the goal. And I think that's what this documentation stuff is for. 
What are you documenting right now? What are you up to? What am I documenting now? Um, for some reason, uh, my prayers, my conversations, my um, my internal and external conversations with others, at least, you know, sort of point me in a direction to document the emotion of this time. You know, I, as I mentioned, a lot of the stuff that I've um, a lot of the stuff I've documented in the past was always during traumatic times where it's like, oh, man, I need to journal like this happened, that happened, this person, that person, whatever, whatever. Let me write about it. And, you know, all on the blogs trying to figure out how to fix problems through journaling, all that stuff. They're the same stuff everybody goes through. And um, I never really journaled when things were going well. I never really written anything thought about anything until things suck. And lately, you know, things are actually in a pretty decent place. Things are like for the first time in a long time, you know, not in a long time, but for the first sustained period of time in a long time, uh, I kind of wake up in the morning and I'm like, yeah, I mean, like this is kind of what I would want to be doing today. If I had to ask, (laughs) (laughs) like, this is kind of like, what the whole thing was about like this is why this is it's kind of cool like yeah and i think um being able to dissect the thoughts that are happening during those times is equally important and um yeah so that's what i'm up to through a very variety of means i'm trying to document like what it means to be uh what it means to imagine one as being happy Can you tell the Not Yet community where we can find you and your work on the internet? Yeah, um, on the interwebs. Uh, so the my personal journey, my personal work and my practice and client work and all that stuff is found on my Instagram for the moment at uh, Justin McEldery. It's M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. Um, Justin in the traditional spelling, I guess, <laughs> whatever traditional means. And then um, for my sort of body of work in terms of company that I started three and a half years ago, Educated Guests, that exists at educated underscore underscore guests. And um, there's a website for that as well, which you'll find in the bio. Um, so I think that those are the two primary places. And um, I'm always down to have these sorts of conversations if you're interested. So DM one of those places and somebody will respond somewhere. Justin also has a great newsletter with some very funny memes. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Not Yet. The podcast is hosted by me, Paige Polk, and produced by Paige Polk International. The show art is made by Elizabeth Olgeen and the music is by Elder. Don't forget to subscribe here. And if you want more of this love in your life, visit notyetseries.com to join the Not Yet Project and community. I'll see you next week.